So tonight we're in Revelation chapter 13, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. On Wednesdays we're going in depth uh, of our weekend text, so we've been in Revelation 13 and 14, and tonight we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 and 2, just these first uh, two verses. I'm all over the place tonight, but there's one other thing on my heart. So, just breaking the rules. It's family time here on Wednesday night. So, most of you probably know today started a really important Supreme Court case uh, that has to do uh, with abortion. So, I wanted to make you aware of that. Apparently, uh, Mississippi passed a law that would ban abortion uh, past 15 weeks. And we would love to see abortion not legal at all, but it's a big step in abortion not being allowed in our country. And I don't fully uh, understand the ramifications, but how this court case goes is really going to affect things uh, in the future. So it's something to be praying about. Um, God has a heart for life, right? And, and he has a heart for our, the unborn. And so Uh, Look it up, research it, but it's a really important uh, case that's happening. It started today. So uh, let's pray together and let's pray over that. So, Father, we know that you're the author of life. You're you're the giver of life. Jesus, you came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. Um, We just pray over this Supreme Court decision and pray they'd be seeking you, seeking your word. Lord, that you would bring uh, to them just memories of their own kids and grandkids and and Lord, the power of, of life and, and life in the womb. So we give that to you. And as we look at, at you ruling over the nations, may we be encouraged that you do have a plan. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. More so than any other time in my lifetime, I'm seeing the importance of governments and government leaders. I didn't really understand how powerful government leaders are until these last two years. But governments and political leaders, they have a tremendous amount of power, and they make a lot of of decisions. And the scripture tells us that when someone's righteous is in government, that the people prosper, that there's a blessing that comes upon the people. There's a lot happening in nations right now. Russia is on the border of Ukraine and is posturing to attack Ukraine. We don't know if that's going to happen, but this is a quote uh, that came uh, from NATO's secretary general. So this isn't just anybody. This is NATO's secretary general says, tanks, drones, electronic warfare systems, and tens of thousands combat troops are ready on the border of Ukraine. So Russia's ready to just walk in and take Ukraine, and nobody's going to stop them. You don't have to be a military expert to figure that out. Uh, The United States is not in a position where we're going to take that one on. So so Russia might just roll right in and say, yep, Ukraine's going to belong to us. China is doing the same thing with Taiwan. And they're really posturing to say, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to take Taiwan. There was a civil war with China and and Taiwan. And in 1949, Taiwan had its independence. But China still thinks that Taiwan's one of their territories. Talk about sore losers, right? Like they're they're like, you still belong uh, to us. On Sunday, 
China sent over 27 warplanes into Taiwan's airspace. Six of those have nuclear capacity. We don't know if they had nuclear bombs, but they had nuclear capacity. I don't know. I'm not an expert on these things. But it's possible that China and Russia will go about this at the same time. That they'll sync up and they'll make these attacks and make it even harder for the world to stand up against them. But what we see tonight in Scripture is God very clearly, through prophecy, showing that he rules over nations. That he's the God over nations. And it comes to us through this prophecy of the Antichrist. Revelation 13 describes the Antichrist as a beast and what the beast is like. And it takes us back to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And to really understand this prophecy, we've got to spend time in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to start here in Revelation 13 and see how God laid this foundation back in the book of Daniel. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So here comes the Antichrist out of the sea. And we know that the sea represents the multitudes of people from Revelation chapter 17. We'll see that in a few more weeks. So the Antichrist is really coming out or from the people. He's a beast. Why is he described as a beast? Because this is his nature. He has has a beast-like nature, just murderous, destructive, destroying people's lives, obviously against Christ. But then also, he has seven heads. And you're going to see why this is so important when we get back to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. But the seven heads speak of seven leaders, as well as the ten horns speak of ten leaders. So the Antichrist is going to lead with ten other nations, with ten other kings. And of those ten nations, seven are more powerful than the other three. And that's actually prophesied in the book of Daniel. So what's so amazing about this is God laid a prophetic table for this all the way back in the book of Daniel. Then there's this description of what the beast looks like. Now the beast, which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So Satan is the dragon and Satan is giving the power to the Antichrist, giving him his authority and his throne. But this isn't just happen chance that John sees the beast and says, well, he's like a leopard and he's like a bear and he has the mouth of a lion because as we'll see in just a moment, this is brought up in Daniel chapter seven. God says, here are the kingdoms of the world and they're like a lion, they're like a bear, they're like a leopard. So the leopard represents Alexander the Great. And then we see that the bear represents the Medes and the Persians, and the lion represents Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And notice that the Antichrist is going to be like all three. That's what God's saying. He's saying the beast that's going to come on this scene at the end of all times is going to be like Alexander the Great. 
is going to take the world on like Alexander the Great with, with a storm. It's going to be like the bear, like the Medes and the Persians. It's going to have this dominating influence and the lion being Babylon and how Babylon spread through the world. So it's really clear when you put this together with the book of Daniel that the Antichrist is going to be a very strong political leader. With this alliance with 10 other kings, 10 other nations, and is going to dominate the world the way Alexander the Great did, the way that Babylon did, the way that the Medes and the Persians did. Isn't the world ripe for one leader that can solve all of our problems? (laughs) That should scare you, right? But throughout history, when there's crisis and there's a, a lack of comfort, the world says, I'll give up my freedom for security. So if you can promise me security, then I'm going to to give you freedom. Why is it that Germany fell for Hitler in such a major way? Because they were in crisis. They couldn't feed their families. They'd been devastated after World War I. And here Hitler says, hey, I can restore us. I can get your comfort back. I can get your security back. And interestingly enough, the church even got behind Hitler. Largely, the Christian church in Germany embraced Hitler's leadership. It was a small group of Christians like Bonhoeffer that said, no, wait a second, this Hitler guy is no good. And and history points out that Bonhoeffer was right. But if we were in churches in Germany, you would hear a lot of pastors say, we're going to support Hitler because this strong influence to say, we've got to have our comfort and we've got to have our security. So our world seems to be ripe for a one world leader that can solve all of our problems. And initially the Antichrist will. And the world's like, this is great. One world government, one world economy, one world religion. There's so much unity uh, together, but then ultimately he'll bring in his uh, destruction. So let's see how God prophesied this back in the book of Daniel. And I think you'll see the parallels to Revelation chapter 13. So if you turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, we're going to look in verse 31. Daniel 2 verse 31. What's so encouraging about Daniel's life It's talk about Daniel living in a secular environment, being taken captive from Judah, brought as a young man to Babylon. They change his name. They try to strip his relationship with God away, fill his mind with all of the worldly influence of Babylon. But Daniel stayed true to the Lord. Daniel had purposed in his heart that he was going to serve the Lord. If you haven't read the book of Daniel in a while, it's really applicable to the world we're living in today. If you feel like you have a Nebuchadnezzar in your life, look at Daniel. Look at the way that he walked with the Lord. Look at how God used him. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, tells his wise men, hey, you need to interpret this dream, and if you don't interpret this dream, you're dead. How would you like to have a boss like that? Right? you thought your boss was bad. Daniel happens to be one of the wise men. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, why don't you give me some time and I'm going to seek the Lord and see if God will reveal this to me. 
And God revealed the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is the dream God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, and it pictures the nations. And what's important about Daniel chapter 2 is we're going to see this amazing statue with precious gems, gold and silver and iron. And this is how man sees nations. We see nations as something that's really valuable and really important. But then Daniel chapter 7 shows us God's view of nations. And Daniel 7 pictures the same nations and the same leaders as beasts. God sees the, the real heart and nature of these leaders and these nations. So verse 31 you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. So this is, this is an amazing image that Nebuchadnezzar sees. The image's head was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze. So you've got a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So legs of iron, but then the feet are unique that they're part iron and part clay. So that's, that's the image. But notice what happens to this amazing statue. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So this huge stone comes and crushes the feet of this image of iron and clay. The iron and clay, the bronze and the silver and gold were crushed, and now the whole image is crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the stone comes and crushes this image and just begins to grow and grow and grow, and the stone fills the whole earth. Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings. I bet Nebuchadnezzar liked that. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom of power, strength, and glory. Maybe you didn't like the second part so much. Nebuchadnezzar, you're a great king because God has given you this power and strength and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he shall give them into your hand and has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold." So very clearly, each section of this image, each section of this statue represents a king, a kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, is the head of gold. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours. This is the Medes and the Persians that were able to defeat Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in 539 BC. Now remember... God is writing this before this happens. God's view of the nations. God's power over the nations. We read this and we go, oh yeah, it was clearly the Medes and the Persians, but this hasn't happened yet. Nebuchadnezzar's the most powerful man in the world. This is Babylon. They're, they're a world-dominating empire. They can't even begin to anticipate that they're going to get wiped out 
God says, yeah, there's going to be another kingdom after you, but they're going to be lesser than you. And so this next kingdom is the chest of silver. Silver's not as valuable as gold. And a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. This is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's the next world-dominating empire after the Medes and the Persians in 330 BC. And, And he comes on the scene, but is not quite as strong as the Medes and the Persians. It goes from gold to silver to bronze. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like the iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. This is the Romans. The Romans conquering the Greeks, 63 BC. And the Romans were strong, like iron, and they were able to crush. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. This speaks of the Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire is going to be divided, and as it's divided, there's still aspects of iron, but there's clay, it's not as strong, and it's likened to ten toes. Well, what did we see in Revelation? We saw ten horns, and here we're seeing ten toes, and this, this prophecy goes on in verse 43. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron doesn't mix with clay. And here's this future prophecy of the stone, the final kingdom, which is Christ's kingdom. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now notice, what does it say? In the days of these kings, in the days of the ten kings. So these ten leaders that join with the Antichrist has been prophesied in Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And if you read Revelation closely, you see that it's during this time of the Antichrist and these ten kings that Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. And throughout scripture, Jesus is likened to the stone. He even referred to himself as the stone. He's the stone that comes and crushes these other kingdoms. So, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And God's kingdom is quite the contrast from the world's kingdom. There's always going to be a a leader that comes after. There's always going to be another world-dominating empire. But God's kingdom, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, it's going to last. In verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw the stone which was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. 
Notice that the stone is made without hands. God is not made by man, obviously. Christ is God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the God-man. The virgin birth. Died, rose again, and sets up his kingdom. So this stone is without hands, and it breaks all other kingdoms. And what what I want to encourage you with tonight, as we wrestle through this crazy time that we're living in, is God sees nations, and he rises up nations, and he sets another nation aside, and he highlights these four kingdoms for us, and it's going just the way that the Lord has planned, and for us to rest assured that someday we're going to see Christ rule and reign. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. How cool is that going to be to be able to rule and reign with Christ? When Christ returns, he's going to set up a thousand-year reign called the Millennial Kingdom, and guess what? We get to rule and reign with him. Have you been longing for a great political leader? Well, it's Jesus. Have you been longing for a great pastor and a great mentor? Well, it's Jesus, you know? He's going to make things right, and we're going to see what it looks like for his kingdom to be put in place. So let's look at Daniel 7, and in Daniel chapter 7, is a vision of four beasts. And each of these beasts represent one of these world-dominating empires. But this time, these empires are from God's perspective. It shows their, their beastly nature. Verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so Nebuchadnezzar is, is dead and gone. Belshazzar is now the king David, or excuse me, Daniel's still serving the Lord in faithfulness. Daniel had a dream and a vision of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So he knows that God is speaking to him in this dream. He writes it down. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. A reference to the Mediterranean Sea. All of these empires that we're looking at have been around the Mediterranean Sea. When you look at the Roman Empire, Babylon, when Alexander the Great, all around the Mediterranean Sea. The Great Sea is referring to the Mediterranean Sea. And four great, great beasts came up from the sea, each different from another. Our perspective of nations, gold, silver, bronze, God's perspective, they're beastly. At the end of the day, nations are sinners with that beastly nature. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's head was given to him. The lion It points to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And if you read of Nebuchadnezzar's story in the book of Daniel, God humbled him because of his pride. And that's spoken of here, of how God would pluck off the wings. And suddenly another beast, this happened quickly, the the Medes and the Persians quickly came in and took over Babylon. And that's also recorded for us in, in the book of Daniel. A second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, 
And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. This is the Medes and the Persians. Verse 16, And after this I looked, and there was another like a leopard. So you can see the parallel to Revelation 13, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This speaks of Alexander the Great, and when he died, it went to four generals, which speaks of the four heads. After this, I saw in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all of the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is the Roman Empire. And once again, we see these ten horns. So it's safe to bet and this is just my estimation, it's just my, my guess, but these 10 kings, these 10 leaders, these 10 nations are probably going to be resurrected out of the old Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. If, if you were to look at a map of the Roman Empire and see the area that it encompassed, I expect that the 10 leaders, the 10 nations are going to come out of the old Roman Empire because we see the connection of the 10 horns, the 10 leaders with uh, the Roman Empire. Crazy if you look at all the expansion in, in the Middle East in just the recent past. United Arab Emirates. It's phenomenal. It's like it's a modern day masterpiece that it could come up with so much uh, prosperity. Well, that's the old Roman Empire. You know, 50 years ago, you'd go, man, this is a wasteland. And now, it's, it's so nice. It's so established. It's, it's one of the, the wealthiest places in the world that, that you could go to. So, I don't know how it's going to all unfold, but it seems pretty clear from verse 7 that these 10 horns or 10 leaders that come out of the Roman Empire. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out of the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking blasphemous words. This is none other than the Antichrist. So out of these 10 leaders, so the Antichrist is kind of playing it cool with the 10 leaders solving problems like a pandemic and stuff. A little too close to home, a little too soon. Sorry about that. And there he is doing his thing, and then he starts to rise and take more and more leadership and pluck off three of the other leaders. Now, if you noticed in Revelation 13, there was, let's see, we should go back and read it. <laughs> There's seven and ten. But let's look at verse one and two again. It says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on the horns ten crowns. So there's seven heads, but ten horns. So of those ten leaders, then seven become prominent, and that is prophesied all the way back here in Daniel chapter 7, that out of the ten, there's going to be seven that are prominent, and the Antichrist is going to come and speak blasphemous things, pompous things. Isn't that wild? Isn't that amazing that God prophesied that all the way back in Daniel 7? 
I watched till thrones were put in their place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, and his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. How cool in Daniel's vision to see Jesus take his proper place and put all of the thrones of man in place, all of the thrones in humanity, till the thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. The whitest snow and his hair pure as wool, it speaks of his purity and his wisdom. And for Christ to, to rule and reign, amazing. In verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So the angels ministering to Christ and worshiping and surrounding the throne room of God. In verse 11, And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to burn fire. So in Daniel's vision, he's seeing the Antichrist, the beast that Revelation 13 reveals. And the beast is destroyed. And the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, title for Jesus. Jesus is referred to to the Son of Man 80 times in the Gospels. Man speaks of his humanity, Son speaks of his deity, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And this is what we long for. This is what I hope we don't miss as we study the book of Revelation, is this is what it's all leading up to, is the second coming of Christ. This time of year, we reflect on the first coming of Christ. Maybe some of you are beginning Advent and reading scriptures and meditating on the the birth of Christ. And we're able to look back on this perspective of Christ's first coming with awe. But we should look forward to Christ's second coming with utmost anticipation. How beautiful that he came as a baby in a manger. On his second coming, he's coming as the line of the tribe of Judah that's going to set all things right, that's going to rule and reign over the nations. If you're frustrated, lift your eyes to Christ. If you're concerned and confused what's going on in the nations, man, if I'm Ukraine right now or Taiwan, I'd probably be getting pretty nervous. Look to the the King of Kings. He's going to set up his kingdom, and we're going to get to be a part of it. So Daniel interprets this in verse 15. And I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the vision of my head troubled me. Can, can you imagine poor Daniel? Like, this is just blowing my mind. Like, what in the world does all this mean? And I came near to those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Asking goes a long ways. When we're confused, ask the Lord. Don't understand scripture, ask the Lord. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. So we're not making this up. 
God tells us that the four beasts represent four kings that come out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Who receives the kingdom? The saints of the Most High. How's that going to look? I don't know. It's going to be amazing. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. Daniel's attention goes to the fourth beast, which was different from all of the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns were which on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke blasphemous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So Daniel wants to know about this little horn. He wants to know about the Antichrist. And once again, it's emphasized that the Antichrist picks off three of these nations. Of the ten, three of those kings are eliminated. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. We see that in the book of Revelation. Until the Ancient of Days came, judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The Antichrist doesn't get the final word. The Ancient of Days does. And the martyred saints are are justified. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the others, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Ten horns are ten kings. So, so we know this. And this is yet future. This is what Revelation 13 speaks about. Who shall arise from the kingdom, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. This is interesting that the Antichrist wants to come in and change times and law. And the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well today. And what do we see a huge push for? Times are changing. How many times do we refer to that and go, man, time, times are really changing? And Satan and the Antichrist wants, wants to push things more and more in an anti-biblical direction to where society and culture looks totally different than what we read in the scriptures, but also change the law. And laws are changing like crazy, not only in the United States, but, but throughout the world. And, and some are arguing for there being no law at all, for there to be no order at all. And Romans 13 says that God raises up government. God raises up laws. Without there being law, there, there isn't peace in our societies and in our families and in our cities. So we see that agenda of the Antichrist uh, happening. How long does the Antichrist get? Times, times, and half a times? Three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation, what we've been studying in the book of Revelation. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. So the ultimate court, the ultimate supreme court, not the United States of America, but God's throne, God settles this, 
and takes out the Antichrist and Jesus, the stone, his kingdom is established forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of his kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominions shall serve and obey him. So when we speak of Christ's kingdom, Jesus spoke a lot of his kingdom. Spiritually, the kingdom is now. Spiritually, the new covenant, we're in the kingdom. We're in Christ's kingdom. But the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God doesn't happen until the second coming of Jesus, where he rules and he reigns and he has dominion over the nations. There's some that teach that the church is actually what ushers in the physical manifestation of the kingdom. Uh, Really clearly, it's not the church. It's Jesus. Is, Is the church the ancient of days? Well, we're pretty ancient, but we're not ancient of days, right? It, it's Jesus that brings in the kingdom. It's, it's his return. He's the stone that rules over the nations. In verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept this matter in my heart. We understand this even more so than Daniel, because we're able to look back and go, oh yeah, this was Babylon. This is the Medes and the Persians. This is Alexander the Great. This is the Romans. And, and we're just waiting for the ten toes. That's, that's the last thing, the ten horns. That's the last thing that we're waiting for. And, and out of those ten horns, then comes the little horn, the Antichrist. So why go into all this detail? Because God is amazing. God prophesied all this in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, It's going to happen just as the Lord has planned. Here's the application for us, and there's three tonight. And the first is this, is God has a plan. God has a plan. And as we look at things unfolding on a national level, on a global level, and on a personal level, God has a plan. We don't always know what that plan is, but God definitely has a plan And God rules over the nations. That's number two. He rules over the nations. He's the one that allowed Nebuchadnezzar, raised up the Medes and Persians, raised up Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, has allowed the United States of America to be what it is today. All the different nations of the world. God God rules over the nations of the world. And for us to trust and rest and know that he does rule over the nations of the world. And then number three is the Ancient of Days is coming. The Ancient of Days is coming. His kingdom, the stone, is going to be set up literally here on earth. Jesus promised that he's going to set up shop on the Mount of Olives, that he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And when he does, there's going to be an earthquake and the Mount of Olives is going to split and and living water is, is going to flow. There will be those that live through the tribulation that will be alive during this thousand-year period. We're promised that we're going to rule and reign with Christ. He's giving his kingdom to his people, to his saints, to to his, his children. So what we're going through now is difficult. And what is going to happen during the book of the book of Revelation, the tribulation, is extremely intense. 
But ultimately, it's all leading up to something so good, and that's Christ returning. Sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we miss the exclamation point. We read it like we don't know how it's going to end. We know how the story's going to end. Jesus is going to return. He is going to rule and reign from, from Jerusalem, and that's just the beginning. After that thousand-year year period, a new heaven and a new earth, and imagine all that God has in store for us for all of eternity. So you, like me, it's easy to get very concerned in the times that we live in, and passages like this really encourage us that God is in control. When you read a message about God being in control, hopefully it doesn't lead us to passivity, where we go, oh, God's in control. I know Daniel 2, I know Daniel 7. You know, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, so who cares, right? Hopefully that's not our response. Hopefully our response is one of, you know, God's in control, so I'm going to get in line with Christ's mission. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was his priority. Time is short. I want people to know Jesus. And it gives us an urgency to love Christ, to, to serve Christ, to take steps of faith. Is there reason to get involved in, in our, our country politically? I, I think so, with the, the right perspective of understanding that the United States of America is not going to last forever but we are dual citizens. We're citizens of heaven and we're citizens here on earth. And as we get involved in the political process to keep Jesus in mind, that more than anything else, I want to represent Christ. I want to be a witness to those who who don't know Jesus. I want to be salt and light. We don't know when Christ is going to return. I think that we would love for the world and for the United States to be a great place for our kids and for those of you that, that have grandkids. But remember, that's secondary to Christ. That's secondary to his kingdom. It seems like when it comes to political things, it's really easy for us as Christians, one, to just, never mind, I'm not going to get involved. I'm, I'm just not going to get involved at all. I, I don't even want to deal with that. Or the other is we get hyper-involved to the point that we forget about Christ, that we forget our greatest mission. Martin Luther said that Christians are a lot like riding a horse. Well, what what did he mean? Is that we fall off of one side or the other. We have a hard time being balanced. So how do we get balanced and get involved in the things of this life? Like, do you get involved with a school board? Do you you get involved with local elections? Do you vote in a presidential election? I think you do. Because it's important for there to be godly leaders. We're, We're seeing that. But in the midst of that process, we don't lose sight of who we worship. I hope you understand we don't worship a political party. That'd be a terrible place for your worship to be, whatever political party you choose, right? Don't make that mistake of thinking man's kingdoms are gold and silver and bronze. No, man's kingdoms are beasts. Have you, if you look at it accurately, yeah, there, there's a sinful, beastly type of nature at the midst of, of every kingdom. So by all means, get involved, but keep the focus. Keep, keep the main thing. What is God really concerned with at the end of the day? Is he concerned with a political party? Is he concerned with a nation, a nation individually? 
or is he concerned with people coming to know Jesus? When we get to heaven, we're going to realize what he's really concerned about is souls. He's so concerned about souls that he sent his son to die. And his son died upon the cross and his rose, rose again to save us for all of eternity. And Jesus came during this fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, that was absolutely brutal. And Jesus didn't overthrow the Roman Empire. So if our goal as Christians is simply political, we've missed the heart of Jesus. We've missed the ultimate goal, and that's to see people come to know Christ their Savior. But I do think we can, if you're feeling led to, get involved in the political process while being kingdom-minded. So I'm involved in this process because I want to see people come to know Jesus. We need Christians in business. Why? Because there's sinners in business that need to be saved. We need Christian leaders in the political sector. Why? Because it's an opportunity to share the gospel. We need Christian educators. Why? Because it's a place to, to share the gospel. We need Christians serving coffee because every aspect of life, we need Christians that are saying, I'm kingdom-minded, my heart is for Jesus, but I'm involved with where the Lord has planted me to see the kingdom of God expand, to see the kingdom of God grow. I know these are hard times, but aren't they exciting? They're exciting times to be alive. The, the world's changing. It, it's looking differently. It changed so much in a two-year period, and ultimately God is on the throne, and he's stirring hearts to come to know him. So would you stand with me, and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you do reign. I can't even imagine what this is going to be like for, for you to show up on the Mount of Olives, to descend and to rule and reign and, and be over all of this nonsense. And we look forward to that. And as we look forward, may we not be passive. May our hearts be burdened for the lost. May we be following you from a place of trust. And Lord, we do thank you for our country. We thank you for our leaders and pray you'd give them wisdom. Lord, and help us to be involved in different areas of our community and different areas of our country for your glory to point people to you. So Lord, we rejoice in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.